This is your morning wake-up call on Sports Country. Grab a cup of coffee and hang with us every weekday morning for the latest news, sports, and other things going on around the world and in your backyard. Now, here's your host, Gene Gums. Well, good morning, everybody. It is six minutes past nine o'clock here in Middletown, Connecticut. Welcome to a Tuesday morning wake-up call on Sports Country Radio. Thanks for starting your day with us. Of course, the talk of the sports world this morning. And I, I, I have to say, uh, this is great. The talk of the sports world this morning is women's basketball. You know, uh, UConn with that exciting 69-67 win over Baylor in the Elite Eight game last night, sending UConn to its 13th consecutive Final Four. It's crazy. Um, But the fact that we are talking about women's basketball to start this show off and that it was all over social media last night. There's headlines in the AP. It was on the you know it's a lead story on the morning talk shows. It's you know that that aren't talk that aren't sports shows. That alone tells you that women's basketball has come a long way. And whether you agree with the no call at the end of the game, and let's be fair, it was a no call. The Johnny Carrington was fouled at the end of that game there is no question but that is what basketball is and you know before you get all righteous about you know well Baylor got screwed let's also remember all the non-calls that happened during that game twice in the last couple of minutes Kristen Williams drove the lane appeared to get hit and there were no calls there from the opening tap the referees let these teams play. There were no ticky-tack fouls called in this game last night. You know, the referees decided from the get-go that they were not going to be the story in this game. They were going to let the teams play. Now, it's kind of ironic that they end up being the story. But in a game as physical as this game was last night, the fact that there were only... Only 36 free throws in the game. Baylor shot 20. UConn shot 16. The fact that there were only 36 free throws in as physical a game as that was is a testament to the way that the the referees officiated the game. And I have zero problem with that. Zero. I, I think that I would much rather let the game be decided on the floor. And... Again, before you get all, you know, indignant, and this is nothing against fans of Baylor University or people from the state of Texas. Okay, let me let me start that off right 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 away. This has nothing to do with homerism or anything like that. You know, dude, did I want UConn to win this game? Of course. 
But when you look at it objectively, and you can say whatever you want about that final play, we have to remember everything that led up to it and all the things that happened and all the calls that weren't made prior to that. And by the way, how about if you don't let UConn go on a 19-0 second half run to turn this game around? UConn was down by 10 55 to 45. UConn then scored the next 19 points. That's all you need to know about this game. And was it unfortunate? You know, uh, there was a, uh, you know, a, a hamstring injury to Didi Richards. You know, and you feel bad. For Baylor, but look, it's part of the game. Nobody is going to feel bad for UConn if, uh, and you're a Baylor fan, if Paige Beckers had gotten hurt. It is what it is. It's part of the game. Just like missed calls are part of the game, just like referees' decisions are part of the game. But when you boil all this down to what happened last night, this was a great basketball game. It had everything. I mean, UConn started out, they, they started the game 16-4 to run. They started the game, jumped out to a 12-point lead. Kim Mulkey, the head coach of Baylor, had to call a timeout, and it looked like she it was like, what in the hell just happened? Well, what happened after that was they stormed back, and it was a two-point game at the end of the first quarter. And Baylor had a two-point lead at the intermission. It was that kind of game. Run here, run there, another run in the third quarter. It was just a great basketball game. And what a great recruiting thing for NCAA women's basketball. And, you know... It's great that LeBron James, of all people, you know, tweeting out, come on, man, that was a foul. Well, okay. And again, I'm not denying that there was a missed call there. But Gino Oriema summed it up best when somebody pointed it out to him in the second half, or I mean, at the end of the game, uh, that in the second half when that foul occurred, LeBron James tweeted that out. And Gino Oriema said, well, I don't think LeBron's ever won a game on a bad call by the officials, do you think? I probably doubt in his career he's ever won a game and decided to give it back because he went, nah, that was a foul. <laughs> he's right. LeBron gets the benefit of the doubt time after time after time. So I get, you know, yes, it was a foul, but it is also part of the game. Stuff happens. And as Gino said, it is what it is. He said at one time in the game, he asked one of the referees, you know, how did, you know, how did Paige Beckers end up on the ground? There's, there's a Baylor player on top of her on a loose ball and there's no call. And the referee looked at him and said, I don't know. <laughs> so he said, you know, if that's, I mean, look at that play. Should that have, should there have been a, a foul call there? Should there have been foul calls when Kristen Williams got hacked a couple of times? He said, look, 
we probably fouled a bunch of times during the game, and they didn't get called. Same thing for Baylor. They didn't get called. He said, you know, we got free throws because of non-fouls. So did they. He said, look, you can go back and forth, you know, the entire game, and you can find stuff. But he said, I'm not going to sit here and apologize. He said, you know what? You all want to talk about it for the rest of the week? Knock yourself out. But he said, you're not going to make me feel bad if you say it was a foul. Good for him. What else is he supposed to say? But here's, you know, and, and, and for UConn, that was a finals-like performance. And Gino said at the end of the game, too, he said that was tougher than some of the final, you know, some of the, you know, championships that we've won. I mean, everybody before the tournament thought Baylor should have been a one seed, thought they were underseeded. I mean, that, you know, if, if, the, if the final is that good, that'll be another poster for women's basketball. But if you're UConn, I mean, you know, you have Arizona next and you can't take Arizona lightly. They're a three seed and, and you know, they're very talented. They have a, a really good uh, little guard. And I mean little, she's like 5'6", but she scored 30 points in her last two games. I mean, it's, it's not like they're going to roll over and die. But they're not Baylor. So, uh, you know, so UConn's got to be, you know, looking at that game last night as perhaps their biggest test. And by the way, you know, here's the other part of this with that non-call last night. Okay? We can't make the assumption that if they did call the foul, all right, even if they called the foul, you're making then you then have to make an assumption that is Carrington going to hit both free throws? Maybe, maybe not. She was seven for ten from the line. She took ten of the twenty foul shots for Baylor last night. Was seven for ten overall? Baylor only shot sixty five percent from the line. UConn was worse. UConn was only nine of sixteen from the line last night. But you know, there's no guarantee even if the foul call is made that she hits both free throws and Baylor wins this game. All right, so, you know, we could go, we can go woulda, shoulda, coulda forever. But at the end of the game, great game. Paige Beckers last night showed why she is the favorite for player of the year nationally. Now, to be sure, this was not a vintage Paige Beckers game. And you're going to say to me, well, she scored 28 points. What are you talking about? Take a look at the box score last night. She only had three rebounds. She didn't have an assist last night. It's the first game all season where Paige Beckers did not have an assist. I mean, this is a player that, you know, is going to get you five or six rebounds a game. She's going to get you five, six, seven, eight assists a game. She had no assists, three rebounds. She did have three steals. But she scored 28 points, and it wasn't just that she scored the 28 points. It's when she scored them. In that 19-0 run that UConn had, she had 10 of the 19 points. She knew that was her moment. She knew that was the moment 
when Didi Richards went out of the game, that was the time that UConn had to win the game, and she made it her personal mission to make sure that that happened. Krista Williams, another strong game, 21 points, 7 rebounds. She didn't have an assist either, by the way. Think about that. The two girls on this team that dish out the most assists on a regular basis, Williams and Beckers, had zero assists. As a matter of fact, UConn only had nine assists in 26 baskets. That's after the game before that when they you know, had an assist on damn near every basket. Just a great game, period. The end. Um, UConn had to battle some foul trouble last night. Their two big girls, Olivia Nelson and Dota, Aliyah Edwards, both with four fouls at the end of the game. But they both combined to have 15 rebounds and eight block shots. Nelson Adota had five block shots by herself. You look at her line, she only had three points. She took three shots. She had three points. But she had eight rebounds, four assists, five blocks. And I'm telling you, Aaliyah Edwards may be, say everything you want about Paige Beckers, Aaliyah Edwards may be the most important player on this team. She was in foul trouble in the first half, had to sit for a while with two fouls. She ended up with four. So offensively, she wasn't a factor last night. But again, she is so long, you know, with the block shots. She had three of them. She had seven rebounds. She had a steal. She had an assist. She does everything. She is maybe she's just as important as Paige Beckers is. And she's only a freshman, too. Think about that, ladies and gentlemen. So great victory for UConn. I know it's controversial. But at the end of the day, you have to look at the game in its entirety. You can't just look at the last three seconds of this game and say, well, Baylor got hosed. Baylor allowed a 16-4 run to start the game. Baylor allowed a 19-0 run. And frankly, you know, with 19 seconds left on the clock, was that the shot they wanted? I don't think so. I don't think the shot that they wanted to get when they took that timeout with 19 seconds left was a contested jump shot along the baseline with two defenders in your face. You know, and and again, look at the game in its entirety, and you have to recognize, even if you think Baylor got screwed, you have to look at this and say, what a great game and how great is this for the sport of women's basketball there are people that were you know mike tomorrow of the new london day my friend uh tweeted out last night he said one of the things that he loved the most was on social media last night watching his twitter feed and seeing people that media members that never talk about women's basketball paying attention to this game last night and again, just a testament to how far the game has come. Uh, Kim Mulkey after the game, the head coach of Baylor, obviously not happy. Uh, and, and you know, she was like, "Look, you don't need a you don't need a quote from me." You know, I have video. One girl hit her in the face; the other girl hit her in the arm. And you know, again, it's not. That's not. You can't dispute that. If you look at the play, you can't say, well, she didn't get fouled. Even the most ardent UConn supporter has to admit that. 
And Kim Mulkey was pissed, and, you know, you can't blame her. But at the end of the day, I think she is going to look at the same thing. And, and she even admitted, look, you know, my girl goes out with a hamstring. It changed the momentum of the game. The whole game swung on that injury. And she came back in. They taped her up, and she came back in to start the fourth quarter. But you could see she wasn't moving. She was kind of hopping around out there. She, she couldn't drive off of that leg. So, you know, they did the best that they could. But, you know, it's again, it's part of the game. Now, the other thing Mulkey uh, talked about after the game, and, you know, I, I understand where she's coming from. I don't know that this was the, you know, the right thing to say, and I hope the NCAA doesn't do this. But she said that she thinks that the uh, NCAA should do away with COVID testing for the Final Four. Said she thinks that, that uh, you know, now she didn't come flat, flat out and say this, but basically that players, even if they test positive, should be able to play. Uh, she said, look, there's going to be four teams left, and she said they need to dump the COVID testing. She said, wouldn't it be a shame to, to, uh, to, that you've got kids that end up testing positive and they don't get to play in the Final Four? She said, just let them play, let them battle it out. Um that's a little tone deaf. But then again, we have to recognize that she does coach in Texas, Texas where everything is open and the governor doesn't care. And the governor probably thinks it's a hoax. So uh, I I hope, and and look, and to be fair, all right, there's been, uh, I think I read 15,000 tests administered at the women's tournament. Think about that. As of Saturday, they had administered 15,000 thousand tests for what 64 teams and it only been two positive tests in over 15,000 of them so I mean I get I mean I get it uh you know where um where you look at it and you say well you know there really hasn't been a problem anyway so why bother you know what but we can't we can't let our guard down. We've said that from the beginning, you know, everybody wants to dump it with the numbers start to go down and everybody says, ah, you know, we can relax. No, no, we can't. So, uh, I'm sure the NCAA is not going to listen to her, but, but kind of a, a tone deaf comment by Kim Mulkey. Now, as far as UConn's next opponent, we mentioned Arizona, uh, beat Indiana last night, 66 to 53. It will be the first final four in women's basketball for Arizona ever. So congratulations to them. It's great. Um, a matter of fact, no matter which team won last night, it was going to be a first because um, Indiana had never advanced past the Sweet 16. They hadn't even made the Elite Eight until this week. So uh, either way, it was going to be, uh, you know, we were going to have a, a first-timer. Ari McDonald is unbelievable. Uh, I watched about half of this game last night. And uh, she finished with 33 points. Matter of fact, it was her second straight game. She had 31 against Texas A&M two days ago or three days ago. And last night she was 12 for 20 from the field, and she made five of six from three-point range. There is no doubt UConn is going to have their hands full with her. But let's also remember, you know, everybody was worried about Caitlin Clark, who can go off for 30-plus a night. And UConn found a way to win that game. 
And at the end of the day, UConn's length is going to win this. Just like last night, there was no question. Baylor was bigger than UConn. They were faster than UConn. But UConn's roster from top to bottom is better than Baylor's. And it was a great game. And look, if they play again tomorrow, it might be a different result. But at the end of the day, you know, you know, Baylor may have been bigger, may have been stronger, but UConn's top-to-bottom roster is stronger. And just like Ari McDonald is going to uh, probably throw in 25-30 for Arizona, they are not going to be able to handle UConn's size inside. Aaliyah Edwards and Olivia Nelson Adota are going to have a field day against this Arizona team. You know, I hope it's not a blowout. I hope it's a great game. I hope UConn, and UConn needs it to be a close game, in my opinion. Because, like, for instance, if South Carolina comes out from the other side and they've got to have a rematch with South Carolina, you want to have uh, a couple of tough ones under your belt and go into that uh, final game tested. So you can't take this Arizona team lightly, but uh, uh, they're going to have their hands full against UConn. You know, and look, the other part about that Arizona team last night uh, they did a great job defensively. Indiana shot just 36% from the field. They didn't make a three-pointer all night. They were 0 for 9. And they had no points off the bench. So defensively, it was a great job by that uh, by that team last night. So uh, Arizona and UConn uh, coming up in a couple of days in the Final Four. I can't wait. Should be fun. Uh, men's basketball, Baylor, is going to the Final Four for the first time in 71 years. Uh, as uh, they beat Arkansas last night, 81-72. to 72. Uh, Baylor now 26-2. and two. It's going to be an all-Texas matchup in the Final Four as they will take on Houston. Houston knocked out uh, the Cinderella Oregon State team last night, the 12 seed, 67-61. This was not a pretty game. Oregon State plays ugly. And this was an, this was an ugly game, but it was a tight game all the way through. I mean, it was tied at fifty five with about three and a half minutes left, uh, and uh, Quentin Grimes with a big three pointer, and then uh, they they hit some some free throws down the stretch. Oregon State did not have a basket in the final three and a half minutes, so uh, it wasn't pretty, but a a good win. For Houston now 28 and three so uh, it is their first trip to the final four uh, in what uh, 27 years since five slam a jamma it's been a long time so a couple of long droughts 71 years for Baylor and 27 years for Houston um, actually 37 years for Houston let me uh, that's how old I my god am I old uh, and uh, so they will Match up in the uh, the final four, and of course the other games coming up tonight on CBS and ESPN, and we will have our final four figured out tonight. Uh, it is twenty eight minutes past the hour. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we uh, got some NBA news, and uh, we'll get to uh, what happened around spring training yesterday as that winds down. Matter of fact, spring training ends today. Back in a minute. You're listening to the Wake Up Call on Sports Country. It's 31 minutes past the hour. Welcome back to the Wake Up Call here on a Tuesday morning programming note. No show tomorrow. Uh, I've got some personal stuff. Uh, Barb has the day off, so we've got some stuff we have to take care of. So no Wake Up Call uh, on Wednesday. We will be back on Thursday morning. Uh, I'm hoping actually to have Matt Corey of Sox Outsider in on Wednesday trying to uh, 
to arrange that to have him uh, be with us on opening day for baseball, which is coming up on Thursday. Um, basketball last night, the Boston Celtics continue to be an enigma, be frustrating, whatever it is you want to say. Uh, they lose to the New Orleans Pelicans last night. 115 to 109. It is another one of those games against a beatable opponent that the Celtics just continue to struggle. Now, they were without Jalen Brown last night. He has a bit of a hip problem, so he took the night off. Uh, Jason Tatum, 34 points. Had a solid game. I can't say anything. He didn't, you know, I mean, he shot 12 for 25, 5 of 9 from 3. Uh, hit his free throws, had nine rebounds, five assists. I mean, he had a great game. Did not get a lot of help outside of Kemba Walker. Marcus Smart was terrible. Marcus Smart, as a matter of fact, Marcus Smart ended up getting a technical foul at the end of the game and got ejected. Um, and I know Smart missed a good part of the season, and I have to couch my disappointment uh, with his play on that fact. But he was he was awful last night again. Uh, six for 15. He continues to shoot three pointers. He, he thinks he's a three point shooter. Uh, he was 0 for six from three point range last night. Uh, he's just been terrible, you know, and, uh, he hasn't even been great defensively. And that's of course what, uh, uh, what he hangs his hat on is his defense. So, uh, a disappointing performance by the Celtics again, last night, they are now a game under 500 yet again, nine and a half games behind Philadelphia. Uh, they are actually tied for the eighth seed in the Eastern Conference. And, folks, right now, the Boston Celtics are a game out of not qualifying for the playoffs. Think about that for a minute. I mean, it is possible with this loaded roster, with Brown and Tatum and Walker, that they might not even make the playoffs. Yikes. So uh, very, very concerning if you're a Boston Celtics fan. And look, they, they have 25 games left to figure this out. And they have just started. That was the first game of a seven-game homestand last night. They played Dallas on Wednesday. They'll have their hands full with that one. But they have a seven-game homestand. They've got fans back in the seats. If they're going to do anything, now is the time. You've got to take advantage of this seven-game homestand and get yourself back in contention. And right now, there just is no indication that that's going to happen. And look, Danny Ainge, you know, made some moves. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the early returns uh, on Evan Fournier, who they got from Orlando, uh, not great. He was 0 for 10 last night. He played 32 minutes, couldn't throw the ball in the ocean if he was standing in a boat. 32 minutes, 0 for 10 from the field, 0 for 5 from 3. Yikes. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say I could have done that. I'm not, well, actually, I'm not sure I could have gotten 10 shots up without having them swatted in my face. But 0 for 10 in 32 minutes. So, so uh, if you thought he was going to be the answer, uh, think again. All right, let's uh, get to some baseball news. Um, the Boston Red Sox got some good news yesterday. Uh, Matt Barnes is back with the team. He has been cleared to rejoin the team. 
Of course, if you remember, he was in COVID-19 protocol because he had tested positive. Well, it turns out that it is probably a false positive or what they are calling, and I haven't heard this, it's called a non-infectious case of asymptomatic COVID-19. What the hell is that? Uh, well, here to, to sum it up, what happened is, is he had the positive test. He has tested negative multiple times after a test came back positive on Saturday. He's never shown any symptoms. Uh, nobody that he came in contact with has tested positive, and they have just decided that it is not, uh, it was a false positive. So he is back. Uh, no answer as to whether or not he will be ready for opening day because obviously he missed three or four days. But you would think, being a reliever, uh, you wouldn't think that it would stop him from being ready for opening day. So that's good news. Um, there were a couple of other players. Now, the Red Sox, outside of Matt Andrees, the Red Sox never identified who else had tested or had been in contact with him. But uh, Garrett Richards and Garrett Whitlock had been uh, uh, kind of invisible in Sox camp after that, so you have to assume they were. Uh, so we don't know where they're at either as, as far as uh, uh, the start of the season goes. And look, if you're the Red Sox, that Matt Barnes was the least of your worries. Right now, with uh, Eduardo Rodriguez having that issue with the dead arm, now he threw a bullpen yesterday, and reports are that he looked better. He looked sharp. Uh, Alex Cora said the ball was coming out of his hand strong. Uh, but there's no news as to when he will pitch yet. It is possible that the Red Sox could put him on the disabled list uh, retroactively and then reactivate him for the second series of the season. So right now, the Red Sox don't know who's going to pitch. Outside of Nathan Avaldi on opening day on Thursday, the Sox don't know who's going to pitch on Saturday or Sunday because they play on Thursday and then they have Friday off. So it's a 2-10 home start on Thursday, Friday off, and then day games on Saturday and Sunday. As of right now, um, it's either going to probably be either uh, Nick Pavetta or Tanner Houck on Saturday. Tanner Houck wasn't even going to make the team. Uh, and if they decide to put uh, Rodriguez on the, the IL, they'll probably bring up Houck. Now, Houck, Houck pitched well in his last spring training start, four and a third shutout innings. So either he or Pavetta will go Saturday, and then uh, Sunday it could be Garrett Richards or it could be whoever doesn't pitch before Hauk or of Hauk and Pavetta. And then the Red Sox will play the Rays for three starting on Monday night. The good news for Boston, you know, is is if you're waiting for Erod to come back and you're not sure, you know, how the, these other pitchers are going to, you know, line up. The good news for Boston is six of their first nine games are against Baltimore. I mean, you know, that's a that that is a gift from God for Alex Cora as they try to navigate the first part of this. So the Sox played their first six at home, three against the Orioles, three against the Rays, and then they go on the road for three at Baltimore. And then of course it gets a little little tougher after that because then they have to go to Minnesota and then they have to play the White Sox and the Blue Jays. So uh, it's going to get real, real quick, but at least the Red Sox will have a chance in the first nine to kind of get their feet underneath them and figure out where they're at. The other good news for Boston is Christian Vasquez seems to be okay. 
Uh, he met with the media yesterday. Uh, he's got a, a nasty uh, cut underneath his eye uh, that had needed stitches. And, uh, but they said that he is 99% sure ready to go. They said his eyesight is fine. They really don't see any reason why he won't be ready for opening day on Thursday. So that is good news as well. Uh, they also announced that it looks like that they haven't officially announced it yet, but it looks like Franchi Cordero is going to make the Red Sox opening day lineup. I mean, look, he missed a whole bunch of time because of the whole COVID thing. Uh, he's only had 17 at-bats in the spring, but he's 5 for 17. Now, you know, one of the problems with Franchi Cordero and one of the reasons that, uh, you know, he's got prodigious power, no question, but he had three at-bats yesterday, and he struck out all three times. That's been the biggest problem his entire career. He has a strikeout rate in his career of about 40%. So that's a little bit of a concern, but uh, he has shown them enough where it looks like he will make the opening day roster. The Red Sox uh, played the Braves yesterday in uh, their next-to-last game. They have an afternoon game today, and uh, and then they were are done with spring training. But uh, Hauk yesterday, four and a third, six strikeouts, two hits, and he only walked one. Looked really, really good. Uh, Austin Bryce with a scoreless inning. Darwin's and Hernandez with a scoreless inning. So uh, the pitching staff looked good yesterday. Kike Hernandez, another home run. Kike Hernandez is hitting 340 in spring training. God, I hope he saves him for the regular season. Uh, Alex Verdugo went 0 for 3 yesterday. J.D. Martinez, his first spring training home run for the Red Sox. 52 at bats, and he finally hit one out. Uh, he hit a solo shot off of Ian Anderson uh, in the third inning. Uh, Xander Bogarts at shortstop again yesterday went one for three. So uh, things are rounding out lineup-wise uh, as it looks like uh, we will have uh, Franchi Cordero. So now the Red Sox just have to figure out what the rotation is going to look like in the outfield. You know, I mean, the good news is is that uh, Hunter Renfro has had a great spring. He's looked really good, ready to go. The biggest question now for the Red Sox is who becomes that utility guy. You know, does Michael Chavis make the opening day roster? Uh, does uh, or does Christian Arroyo make the opening day roster? You know, a lot of the speculation is Chavis won't because he has options left. The Sox can send him down to the minors. Uh, Arroyo does not have any options left. So if the Red Sox uh, want to send him down, they have to expose him to waivers, and uh, he'll probably get sucked up. So uh, we'll see how that goes. Uh Aaron Judge did not play in the final spring training game for the Yankees yesterday. Uh, you know, uh, he was not feeling well, uh, but Aaron Boone said he will be ready for opening day. I mean, look, they've got three more three more days before they got to play. Uh, they lost to the Tigers yesterday, 5-2. Games mean absolutely nothing. Uh, Domingo Herman did pitch, gave up a couple of runs in four innings, but he struck out four, didn't walk anybody. Uh, you know, uh, Chad Green got torched out of the bullpen. That was the difference in this game. Uh, but outside of that, Gary Sanchez, again, continued to struggle at the plate, went over 2 uh, hitting under 200 again this spring. So the, the narrative that the Yankees were trying to push that Gary Sanchez is a different player than he was last year, uh, he has not shown that so far this spring. Um, and one other interesting note, um, out of Yankee camp, and, and uh, Aaron Boone talked about this with the press yesterday. Masahiro Tanaka decided to return to Japan. He gave an interview to a Japanese newspaper, and he said that part of the reason why he went back was because uh, he and his family faced a lot of uh, racism and uh, in New York 
during the pandemic. And, you know, we have seen a rise in Asian racism and violence across this country, uh, thanks to our former president, Donald Trump, who, you know, insisted on calling it the the China virus. And by the way, you know, really, really intelligent. Uh, Masahiro Tanaka is not Chinese, but be that as it may, uh, people don't make that distinction. And I guess uh, they took a lot of abuse. And so that was a big part of the reason why he decided to go back to Japan and not re-sign with another team in the United States. Can't blame him. You know, if you don't have to, you know, expose your family to that, why the hell would you? Uh, the Mets, as they continue their uh, extension talks with um, uh, Francisco Lindor, they've got two days left to sign him prior to the start of the season. That was Lindor's deadline. He said, if, we're not, if we don't have this done by the start of the season, I'm not negotiating during the season. Uh, he's had uh, dinner just the other day with Steve Cohen, the owner, uh, supposedly wants $300-plus million. And uh, Steve Cohen is, you know, it's just going to be a matter of he, he's got the money. He says he doesn't mind spending the money. Uh, I think we're probably just talking about numbers of years. So we shall see. But I think they get this done. Uh, the Mets in their final uh, game yesterday, Taiwan Walker got the start. Pitch well. Uh, coming back uh, from an injury, five innings, three hits, two runs, uh, locked up one of those spots in their rotation. Adam Wainwright got the start for the Cardinals yesterday. Uh, was not very sharp in his final appearance. But again, uh, you know, he's more, you know, at, at 38 years of age, he's just out there getting some innings in, and I'm sure he's saving his bullets uh, for when they really count. It's 45 minutes past the hour. we got uh, a little bit more baseball news. We'll talk about that when we come back. You're listening to The Wake Up Call on Sports Country. It's 47 minutes past the hour. Welcome back to The Wake Up Call here on a Tuesday morning. Uh, some other baseball news. Uh, the Texas Rangers announced yesterday that uh, Rudnit Odor is not going to make their opening day lineup. He has been uh, their second baseman, their starting second baseman for the last seven years. Started as a, a 20-year-old. Uh, they switched him to third base this spring, um, and they have decided that uh, he is not going to make the roster. He's got two more years left on a contract and uh, owed $24.6 million. Uh, and there's a $3 million buyout uh, in 2023 as well. So they still owe him a bunch of money. Uh, they said the decision was made because of Brock Holt has made the team. Charlie Culberson has also made the team. Uh, they both came into camp as non-roster invitees. Uh, and uh, Nick Solak has won the starting second baseman job. So now with Culberson and Holt there, uh, Odor is out. Now, if they decide that they are going to uh, uh, release him, uh, he will. They're, they're obviously going to have to try to work out some kind of a uh, 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 a trade, or they're going to have to expose him, and and somebody else, I'm sure, will pick him up. Although there's a lot of money uh, on the table there, so we'll see. But uh, look, and, and when you look at the numbers over his career, you can't necessarily argue. With the Rangers' decision, look, he's played since, what, 2014. He's played 858 games. He's hitting 237. you know. Uh, 146 homers, 458 runs batted in. You know, not exactly uh, a, a uh, Hall of Fame uh, job at second base. So uh, just one of those guys, you know, along he came up, he and Elvis Andrus, you know, the two young superstars for Texas. They were supposed to be the future. Well, now Odor has been released and uh, – 
uh, Elvis Andrus was traded away to the Oakland Athletics. So uh, things are a mess in Texas. Uh, MLB has announced that uh, if the vaccinations get to 85% on a team, that they are going to relax the coronavirus protocols. Uh, so, you know, you wouldn't have to wear a mask anymore in the dugout. They could have card games in the the, uh, the clubhouse. Uh, they could carpool. They could eat at restaurants together. Uh, so if 85% of a team gets on board with this, then, uh, you know, they have an opportunity. Both the Cardinals and the, and the Astros announced uh, yesterday that they're going to offer all their players vaccines before the openers. Uh, the Giants at some of theirs have already gotten uh, their vaccinations. Now, in order to be considered vaccinated, fully vaccinated, it's two weeks after your second shot, if you're getting the Pfizer or the Moderna shot, or two weeks after getting the single-dose Johnson & Johnson vaccine. But if 85% get there, then uh, you know they won't have to they won't have to social distance. Uh, if their families are vaccinated, they'll be able to stay with the players in their hotel rooms. Uh, you know, so there's a lot on the line here. And, you know, you would think these players are going to want to do it. However, Mike Schilt, the manager of the St. Louis Cardinals, who have announced they're going to offer vaccines to their players, said that there's a chance that his club's not going to get there because he has players opting out of the vaccinations. So, uh, and you can't force them, you know, I mean, that's, you know, they're, they're, that's going to be an issue at some point. And I saw one company that was trying to force their employees to get a vaccination and there's already a lawsuit. So I don't know how this is going to work. Uh, but you would think that, you know, if you wanted to get back to whatever normal is that these guys would go ahead and do that. But, uh, according to Mike Schultz, the manager of the Cardinals, uh, that may not happen with his team. That's unfortunate. Um, Joey Logano yesterday uh, from Middletown, Connecticut, won the initial dirt race um, at Bristol Motor Speedway. It's the first time NASCAR, the Cup Series, has run on a dirt track in 50 years. And I have to be honest with you. I hope they don't do it again. Although they've already announced they're going to do it again next year at Bristol once again. I didn't like it. Um, now, uh, you know, I'm sure there are people that did, but to me, it was like watching guys trying to race in the snow. You know, I mean, it, cars were going sideways. They, I mean, you could, they couldn't see, I mean, they, some of the camera angles they showed from inside the cars, how the hell are they, you know, and they're driving these cars at ridiculous speeds and you can barely see out of the windshield. You know, the dirt wasn't consistent, so you've got dirt up high, but, you know, the middle of the track has a lot of asphalt showing, but the bottom of the track's got more dirt. You know, and, and so it wasn't consistent. It was hard for drivers to find a lane to drive in. I mean, look, I'm happy Joey won. You know, I I, I am, you know, the, the Connecticut kid, and, uh, you know, I, I broadcast games with his godfather. I mean, I, I, I'm happy for him, but I don't want to see that again. I just did not enjoy that. It just, it seemed, uh, it, it, I don't know. It just didn't seem right. Uh, Denny Hamlin tried to make a run at the end. Couldn't do it. Actually ended up by uh, hitting the wall. And uh, uh, Ricky Stenhouse Jr. finished second. But, uh, yeah, no, I'm not a fan. Not a fan. I hope they don't do it again. Or if they do, 
I hope they take it to a track. Oh, now, they've already said it's going to be at Bristol next year, so it may be something. And this was all, by the way, Fox wanted this. Fox Sports said, hey, you know, this would be great for ratings. Let's do this. And NASCAR went along with it. Um, but I would rather see them do this at a track that is designed as a dirt track. For instance, Tony Stewart has one where they've r- raced uh, truck series on a dirt track before at his at his track. There are other tracks around the country where they could do this, and I think it would be a more legitimate dirt race. Now, do I? Maybe I'm just not a fan of the dirt in particular, but to me, this just didn't seem right. It just with the, all the asphalt showing and the inconsistency in the dirt. And look, I'm not a look. I like NASCAR, but I am not a dirt track aficionado. Maybe this is the way a lot of dirt tracks are. I don't know. Somebody that's smarter about dirt tracks would have to tell me that. Uh, but I just, I just thought it was uh, kind of a joke. I mean, Joey will take the win. It gets him into the playoffs at the end of the year, and it also keeps the excitement going in Nashville. They have had or in NASCAR. They have had seven races this season, and seven different people have won those races. So, I mean, uh, uh, if you're NASCAR, you can't ask for anything more than that because now you're keeping, you know, everybody involved longer. NASCAR is off this week for Easter weekend, and uh, they'll return uh, to normalcy. They'll head to Martinsville, the paperclip, uh, uh, in two weeks for their next race. That is going to do it for us here this morning. Remember, no show tomorrow. We'll be back on Thursday and Friday, but uh, no show tomorrow. i got some stuff I have to take care of. So, Hope you enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. Hope you enjoy your Wednesday, wherever you are. We'll look forward to seeing you on Thursday. We leave you this morning with some music from Levon Helm, former member of the band. Love this song. It's called When I Go Away. Have a great day. See you on Thursday. You've been listening to The Wake Up Call on Sports Country.